0: It's time for school days. Hope for moms and dads of school-age kids. I tell parents, you're like a training wheel on a bike. Your job isn't to make the bike move. Your job is to keep the bike upright. Those of us who are the true educators, we really want to be given the opportunity to educate the whole child. Sometimes
1: we make decisions with our kids on how we think our kids are going to feel in the first 10 minutes versus thinking about 10 months or 10
0: years. Oftentimes, as parents, I think we want to protect our kids, but I think one of the greatest gifts we can give them is allowing them to experience that person. Yeah.
2: You're your
3: hosts, David and Janita Bailey. Well, good evening and welcome to School Days, Help for Moms and Dads of school age Kids. I'm Danita Bailey.
0: And I'm David Bailey.
3: A 2016 study based on their survey of over 76,000 managers and executives by professional firms, PayScale and Future Workplace, reported that 60% of employers believe new college graduates lack critical thinking skills. In 2018, the Cornell University SC Johnson College of Business launched an online certificate program that focuses exclusively on developing critical thinking skills. The program's director remarked that the idea to develop the program was sparked by requests from organizations looking to further develop this competency and their employers, employees and managers. Critical thinking has unfortunately not been a strong focus of schools in our country, but in this increasingly information-based economy, it is a skill that is necessary for their success. So Dave, you have been teaching for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. In your experience, how much of a priority has uh, credible, critical thinking been?
0: Well, I think on a macro scale, not very much. Uh, unfortunately, we're still a test-driven uh society of of educators, where everything rises and falls on those test scores. Um, Now, it's not that you cannot implement critical thinking skills into exams, uh, but if, for example, if we did wonderful projects and they got to explore new things, um, which could really be applicable in the real world and help them to think more critically, and yet their quote-unquote test scores don't look good, unfortunately you know my experience that um they don't really care like <laughs> these numbers the numbers the numbers the numbers and so um, the
3: numbers dictate the amount of money that they get from the state
0: uh well it, more so the the rating the rating of the districts you no know, especially because here in texas we do that the it changed it but it went to the a through f rating mm-hmm. and so that you know determines desirability of your school and you know, no matter what you do, it, it's it's a personal reflection on you as a teacher. Yeah, but it
3: comes back to money, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's because, all about the dollar.
0: Yeah, and so... Unfortunately. Yeah, so unfortunately, you know, it, it does not lend itself to um naturally doing it. Now, there are ways to implement it in, you know, for teachers that don't really want to do it. Um, You know, I've done it a lot um, myself. Uh, like, I think back to last year when the coronavirus hit and we were just starting to study um curve graphs and and how i was teaching them the you know the nature of how they work just from the raw mathematical standpoint but then i applied it to uh, the coronavirus and we started to make connections between that and we started to study because you know i'm my background is in economics and so i began to correlate that to um you know everything from gas pricing to supply and demand uh but because of you know how i can integrate things um it was pretty natural for me, uh, but sometimes, you know, it may or may not be depending upon the training of the teachers and, you know, kind of what the emphasis of each campus is and the leaders um, that that lead them. So um, it's kind of a catch 22, you know, I think many teachers want to do it, but unfortunately um, everything arises and falls on the tests.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of people that think that critical thinking or that being intelligent or having a high IQ You automatically are able to think critically. I was watching. (laughs) I was reading an article yesterday. Why do smart people do foolish things? And those with critical thinking. And oh, the article said that those with critical thinking skills experience less negative life experiences than people that have high IQs. Mm -hmm. Because basically, they're they're able to take the information in and go, okay, this is the best decision to make in light of the circumstances and the information that I have
0: yeah being able to see the you know, life on a global scale um besides just you know categorizing everything um or just you know coming out just being able to do you know be a good test taker um which is a good thing cuz that's how you're rated but um in life there is no multiple choice you know you have to you have to really process things i, I wish life was that simple <laughs> in life there's no multiple <laughs> right. choice so i need to do a b c or d uh, but um you know one doesn't the one doesn't necessarily correlate to another and so you know we both know you know we both had internships in college which helped us to develop some skills as well Mm -hmm. beyond just you know being students because you can come out with a degree and you know have good grades but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can you know manage people or manage money or manage you know organizations and you have to you have to get that experience somewhere so
3: yeah well i am excited about our guest today we yes. are going international for only the second time in our history in our three-year history uh and um why are you looking at me like that how do you think i'm looking at you
0: okay guys right before the show started my wife tried to say that <laughs> you know um we did have an international guest on but she's from dallas and so she's our friend and so i know she's living in a national but to me she's you know still you know, states
3: still just plain old american <laughs>
0: Yes, American in another country, where our first true international, 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 as I like to say, guest is on today. But keep going. She, She's, she's, if you could see her face right now, everybody listening, um, you would know what I'm, you know, why I'm responding.
3: That was person. completely imaginary. Mm-hmm. And I honestly was not thinking about that.
0: Why were you smiling at me when you were saying it? And because you looked, I love you and you, you're cute. Mm, thank you, babe. You look in my eyes and you were grinning while you were saying it.
3: Y'all, he's just a little paranoid, but okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> we digress. Okay, before we go any further, let me just say it does take a village. Um, if you hear a good parenting tip or nugget of advice, share it with your parent friends, Facebook it, Instagram it, tweet it, link it in, and add the hashtag schooldays show and the hashtag I am school days. And also, we want you to be a part of the show. So if you have any questions or comments, give us a call at 214. 214- or if you're live with us on Facebook you can drop us a question there. So without further ado let's introduce our guest or actually we're going to have our guest introduce himself and tell us a little bit about him. This is Peter Ellerton. He is in Brisbane, Australia. He's at the University of Queensland and he is the Director of Curriculum for the Critical Thinking Project. So welcome.
1: Thank you, thank you very much. Nice to be here with you and your and your and your international audience. <laughs> thank you so much.
3: Uh, well, tell us exactly what is the critical thinking project, and why is this something that you guys felt uh, was uh, important to uh, bring to the students there?
1: Sure, um, the critical thinking project at, at the University of Queensland is uh, a bit of an umbrella project which encompasses several key goals one is to better understand what we mean when we say critical thinking and you were talking about critical thinking skills earlier on and the question well what are those skills and and how do you best articulate them Um, but also uh, we are very concerned with the project of teaching people to think well And you, I think in my view, quite correctly, make a distinction between the notion of intelligence and being able to think critically. Um, And I I would not say that they're they're loosely correlated. I'd say they're almost not correlated in some way, Um, because depending on how you understand intelligence, um, it's it's not very changeable um, over a person's life, depending on how you frame it. Um, whereas the ability to think crit- critically, I think, is, is almost entirely teachable. Uh, so there's a big distinction there. So we are concerned with how it is that you can teach people to think well. Um, you know, I think most of the people I work with and certainly the people I live with are, are smarter than me, but I have at least learned how to think in certain ways that allow me to hold my ground uh, in, in this in this environment. Um, and uh, then there's, there's the... Um, Therefore, there's the goal of helping educators to develop ways in which we can teach people to think well regardless of their context. So whether you are a teacher of of early childhood um, studies or whether you are a university lecturer, uh, whether you work in special needs areas, we have teachers and educators from all these areas in our networks um, working on the same project of how you teach people to think well. Now, interestingly, uh, we have another branch which is um, working in the corporate arena um, because the necessity for making good decisions and thinking well, of course, isn't limited just to education, but at mm-hmm. the corporate world. And so um, we've worked with a number of people, town planners, military intelligence, you know, it's a, the, the list is very varied and long, um, who are interested in doing this as well. So that's why the project exists. That's, that's what we do. Um, from, from my background, I was a, I was a teacher um, for about 20 years, a teacher mostly of, of science, and mathematics um, my master's is in science in, in physics but i became very interested in the project of teaching thinking and um, i taught philosophy in schools for a while hmm. uh, and i noticed that my philosophy students were quite different to the uh, students in um, other classes there was something about how they thought so i was interested in what what happened pedagogically for them that made that change. And that's what inspired me to go to the university and, and begin this project and to um, to continue on as we have.
3: All right. Well, my first question, though, is as I was doing kind of a deep dive into critical thinking, and it's such an interesting topic, I did notice that there wasn't a consensus on what critical thinking is. So um, kind of let our, our listeners and our viewers in on what your definition of critical thinking is.
1: Well, I, I can easily do that. I suppose, you know, to, to, to be fair to a, a few different points of view, there, there are some perspectives which suggest that critical thinking is not teachable. Um, but these are perspectives that tend to see um, critical thinking as, as a, uh, almost a sort of Pavlovian reflex. So you teach people to do this and then see if they can immediately do it in a different situation and um, it's not quite like that. I liken it far more to um, uh, perhaps athletics coaching or something like that. I think coaching is a good word in terms of developing critical thinking skills, Um, and so I see this as a long-term goal, not something that you can achieve very short term. I think it's a long term goal, and I think it's something that involves a very complex mix, not just of particular thinking skills but also of particular dispositions and virtues of the thinker themselves so the character of the person has to be developed in a way that matters and and those those areas that think critical thinking can't be taught aren't concerned with those aspects and I think that's a big gap so I do think that it, the person matters if you like which is not supposed to be a revolutionary concept in education but but sometimes it is for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to focus on the characteristics and traits of the person as well. The open-mindedness, resilience and tolerance and, and such things. Um, and, uh, but I will say this. I will say that, that, that the real, a real defining characteristics of critical thinkers and hence an idea of what critical thinking is, is that critical thinkers are most critical about the quality of their own thinking. That's what occupies most of their uh, focus and concentration, at least while they're learning to do it. Um, now, certainly they're doing that in a context. You know, you are, you are thinking critically in an organizational structure, in a business, as a scientist, as an educator, whatever it might be that you're thinking about. But you're not just concerned with the subject matter or rather the subject matter also includes your own thinking. And, you know, how well can I justify that particular inference? What's, what's affecting my thinking here? Um, How do I know, what what do I know about what I should do here, what I ought to do, rather than just what feels right or what what I would like to do. So critical thinking is about navigating through that landscape with autonomy and agency, um, with concern, first and foremost, for your own thinking before you worry about anybody else's thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll I'll sort of give a a broad overview like that, if you like. Is
3: once you have... I don't know if you master critical thinking, but once you've, you've developed good critical thinking skills, is it transferable? Um, is it, if let's say if you, if you're a good critical, if you think critically well in sports, um, do you necessarily think critically well in, um, in your workplace? Does that make sense?
1: Um, it does. It does. And I guess this comes back again to our conceptions of critical thinking because there, there are many who think that critical thinking is only mani- only able to be manifest in a particular domain, mm-hmm. so like sports or brain surgery or whatever it is, but it doesn't transfer outside of it. Now, I think, I think they're mistaking their critical thinking and expertise, which are two different things. So okay. that's that's another story. But expertise and critical thinking are not the same thing. They're quite distinct. Um but because a critical thinker is concerned with, with not just the quality of their thinking, but the quality of their inquiry, which means being acutely aware of what questions might need to be asked at what times, sometimes that's, that's you need to know the domain details to ask those questions, and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you, you can be very acutely aware of what you don't know, and, and you know, make better headway, even if it's an area you're not familiar with than somebody who doesn't think critically. So in that context, yes, it's very transferable. I think there are Understanding our own thinking and ourselves, because we're the thing that's transferable between situations. You know, it's us that's moving between them, so we have to understand our thinking to move between. Them. Right. Uh, and and I think absolutely it is. and even in an academic in a narrow academic context, we have some very good evidence to suggest that 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 sort of training can translate into success in different academic contexts.
3: Mm-hmm. What have some been? What have been some of the barriers to critical thinking education in school systems?
1: Um, well, I pause to select between many. Um, <laughs> one, one is the misunderstanding of what critical thinking is. Mm-hmm. It's conflation with intelligence, for example. Um, uh, and hence, and, and those, those academic streams that, that, that pump out information suggesting it can't be taught, people latch onto that. The reason people latch onto that, educators latch onto that, is because it gives them a reason to focus just on content, mm. uh, and that's much—that's a much more um, easily tested, as you were alluding to at the beginning of this session. Um, it's easy to—it's easy to test um, facts and knowledge. You know, just tick right, wrong, that's it. Um, multiple choice, computer-based, whatever. You know, those kind of standardized testing um, environments are very. You know, difficult to get the critical thinking stuff in if you just want to mark them by, by a computer. Um, and that's easy, and therefore it's easy to measure. So we can have, you know, it's one of those situations of valuing what we can measure rather than measuring what we value.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so all of those areas come into play. Secondly, um, the pedagogy of teaching for thinking is not something that's widely understood. It's simply not. I mean, there are many people, I mean, just naturally good teachers engage students in certain um, or develop classroom cultures and environment in which thinking is 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 cultivated, but not necessarily with sort of intentionality and precision that they could be. Um, And most of the work we do with teachers is not about sort of imposing a system upon them, but but simply helping them to articulate their existing good practice. To better understand it, to better develop it, to better share it, and to better make sure that it's or to make sure that it's more um, uniformly delivered in that way. Um, so there's those issues of misconceptions of critical thinking, um, lack of lack of understanding of how to do it in the classroom, what things work best, the, the institutional pressures that go against um, time and thinking, um, the need for educational administrators and leaders to control what teachers do. Um, the lack of autonomy that teachers can be subject to um, in design and planning and implementation—all um, of these factors mitigate against um, teachers developing thinking skills in students, and they're just some of them.
0: So, in an ideal world, how would the teaching of critical thinking in, uh, be integrated in the school system so that students are proficient um, as they progress through school, so as they progress through school, and ultimately you know, when they graduate? So, in light of all of these challenges that are, you know, brought upon us and everything. I'm, I'm like, in my heart, I'm listening. I'm like, yes, that's yes. Those are all my challenges that I have as a, as an educator. Um, in your opinion, what are the best ways to integrate, um, these, these skills in, in, in light of these challenges that you just mentioned?
3: And I particularly want to know if, if you had your way and, you know, all things, you know, were going in your direction, what would ideally be, um, the way that we would integrate critical thinking into to schools?
1: Well, um, <clears throat> I'm trying to walk a line here between being um, actionable and, and <laughs> ideal. Um, one thing to appreciate is we don't, it's nice sometimes, and it can be a very useful thing to have standalone critical thinking courses. Mm -hmm. that's fine. But again, there's enormous variety in how those are conceptualised and done. So we've got to be careful about how that's done. That's one thing you can do. But it's far more effective to have, well, to have that if you want to, but also to have the the pedagogical approach of any teacher in any area concerned first and foremost with the cognitive activity of their students. That's, That's the central focus of the classroom. And if that is the central focus of the classroom, then we will be developing critical thinking. So the question is, how do you get thinking to be the focus of the classroom? Right. One answer, well, there are several answers to that, um, or several factors that have to come into play. One is that we have to think and plan in the language of student thinking, not just content. You don't just put on paper what it is that you want to cover in terms of content, but you, you try and articulate also what kind of cognitive activity you want to be happening and how to construct that. So we spend a lot of time with teachers looking at that exact question, how can you how can you plan for thinking with the same detail and resolution that you plan for content delivery
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and in fact to do both because one of the one of the things that we one of the fallacies we don't want to perpetuate is that there's a dichotomy between thinking and content assimilation or, or knowledge development. There's not they are the same project. In fact if you do them together you'll improve both. Mm-hmm. It's the best way to do both. Um, so this 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 idea that and that's another barrier I suppose too is in people's minds is that is that focusing on thinking means um, dropping a focus on content and it does not. Um, it is as 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 the philosopher John Dewey rather beautifully said, thinking is the method of intelligent learning. So we have to have students be in control of their own learning by being in control of their own thinking. Um, and that's that's kind of the project in the classroom now now that means that we have to focus on it but the ways in which we focus on it and give it the opportunity give students the opportunity to think in the classroom um because like going back to my my um athlete uh, metaphor if if you want to teach somebody the javelin you know there's things you can tell them about the javelin which are quite useful you know try and hold it here and try and get this particular angle and, you know, you've got to run up this way. You can tell them those things. That's fine. But, of course, it, it, it's all meaningless unless they actually throw a javelin. They have to do the thing. And exactly the same way, we can talk to students about thinking all day, but mm-hmm. unless we give them the opportunity to think and we engineer those opportunities, again, with precision and intentionality in the classroom and engineer opportunities to feedback on the quality of that thinking as well, Um, then it's all for naught. So we, we have to have that in the classroom. So rather than just focusing on student cognitive activity or doing that, it also means that we have to give them opportunities in the classroom to do that thinking. And that space and time in which we can feed back to them and their peers can feed back to them on the quality of that thinking. And that often means conversations, it means discussions, it means dialogue, Um, it doesn't mean chatting just chatting but it means developing inferential pathways and testing their integrity and talking to students and questions like what are your reasons why do you think that's a better reason than that one could you justify that can you explain that a bit deeper can you know we value clarity accuracy precision relevance breadth um, significance all of those things matter in the classroom we need time to talk to students about them and and implement those as we speak with them. So we're talking about a classroom that is highly interactive, that is focused around content, but also focused on student cognitive activity as they do that. Um, That is collaborative because that's how we develop the norms of good thinking, like the norms of good language. We have to think together. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's what the classroom needs to look like. Now, that is a much harder thing to represent on paper it's a much harder thing to uniformly deliver. If we drop the focus on all of that and just worry about content, we can deliver very uniform curriculum. Mm Okay, Because everybody just does the same thing, but it's at this level. If you want everybody operating at a level like this, then it requires far more teacher autonomy and expertise. Um, And uh, that's what's difficult in the terms of a school environment. We worry about classrooms and schools being seen as factories in which students are just churned through and and churned out. The same concern is for teachers because that's how teachers are often treated in these institutions as well. Uh, So we need them to be treated differently so they can do what they do well uh, and properly.
0: You know, as you were talking about this, I was thinking about innovators, people who are creators, people who go beyond the boundaries of what is currently known to create new, to create new things. Um, could you elaborate on the importance of critical thinking skills? Like for example, I'm just thinking back to the Wright brothers and say, you know what? Um, I want to fly in the air. <laughs> you know, this, just you know, before, you no, know, now it's commonplace, but think about this idea, I want to put a device in the air that can fly me, or I want to talk to someone, Um, not face-to-face and not see them. There has to be a different type of thinking that's in place. It's not just a regurgitator of facts per se, but can take what's already known and create something new. Um, Does critical thinking um, lend itself to more of people that are the the explorers um, and that are willing to try new things um, or... um, is it something that is you know can be used in different areas i guess what i'm trying to ask is are people who create and try new things and are willing to fail and and you know make mistakes and and to grow and expand and go beyond what they already know um how important are critical thinking skills um to that area
1: uh they're they're absolutely important they're absolutely critical essential and you know, people often think of critical thinking as just sort of the, the, the chrome and steel of analytical reasoning, um, but it's far, far more than that. Um, the, the relationship between creativity and criticality, for example, is, is absolutely central to developing good critical thinkers. There is no critical thinking without creativity. Um, and um, one, of, one of the really key indicators of good critical thinkers is their ability to challenge assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, to hmm. To try and reframe things. And this is an enormously creative act. So I think, I think just in that you know, brief way of summarizing it, I think, therefore, that critical thinking and thinking skills in general are, are absolutely core to the ability to do that. One of the ways, one of the reasons we value um, critical thinking is it's because it produces effective inquiry. And it's through the process of inquiry that we generate new knowledge, new ideas, new opportunities, um, new products, new functions. Um, and critical thinking is, is always there in the production of, of new knowledge and new information and new possibilities. Um, yes, we have to be imaginative and creative, um, but the path to that, that's what drives the, the path to the end points of those, of those imaginings. Um, Demand an interplay between creativity and critical, criticality all the way through. Um, our work in entrepreneurship um, has shown this time and time again that um, that this connection is too tight. I have a, a colleague of mine who's a who's, a, who's a, a very prolific writer in the field of creativity, uh, an academic in, in Canada, uh, Robert Kelly. And Robert and I were, were involved in a project where he was going to be involved in developing a chapter on creativity and I was going to do a chapter on critical thinking for a book on STEM education and after spending three days together we realized that we could not write separate chapters these two things are just too intertwined the Mm -hmm. conditions which promote creativity are the conditions that promote critical thinking and we need them so closely bound all the time Uh, and when we look at, at Robert's work in creativity we discover enormous amounts of critical thinking and you know it's always that way so um uh i i absolutely see critical thinking as essential to to the generating of new possibilities and the production of new knowledge and and its its core importance to a knowledge economy therefore
3: so as a parent you know we have so many choices about schools here here we've got charter schools and of course public schools and uh, Private. private schools and all these different options for schools that we can um enroll our kids if I'm a parent that is concerned about our my child learning these critical thinking skills, are there things that I can look for to determine whether or not this is important to them, other than their word?
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you know what what are they saying about school is the interesting thing. I've got four kids. I've got four kids, and I've um, you know when when you hear what they say about school. You know whether it's going well or not. Um, whether they're being buried under worksheets of just uh, of just fact after fact, um, or whether they're engaged in some really interesting thinking and inquiry and developing some some really useful um, you know, cognitive skills along the way. So you, you listen to what the, st- the students say about classrooms. Um, and, and if you hear nothing, it's it's uh, you know it's not always a good sign, is it, that, um, that that's the case. From the school itself, you know, you'll always hear things. I mean, it's, it's the job of a school to, to promote what they do. Um, you'll always hear things like, you know, we, we value the individual. You know, we create, we, everybody thinks they promote critical thinking skills and creative thinking skills. Every, everybody says that. So you've got to take all of that with a grain of salt. The critical question is when you ask them how. And, you know, what you'll listen, you'll get one of, you'll get one of, well, one of three really. You'll either get the crickets chirping, and then sort of stumble. Well, oh, you know, not really. I've never really articulated that before. You'll get some sort of glib thing. Oh, it's embedded across the curriculum, and we have wonderful teachers, but but never details. You know, mm-hmm. or they'll tell you what they do. They'll tell you how they 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 structure it. It's just worth it's just worth asking the question. Um, but you but you know, have a look at what your students are doing too. If they're engaged strongly in collaborative work, if they're asking interesting questions. Um, and if they talk to you about their teacher in a positive way, that's always a good sign, isn't it? Mm-hmm. As all, all parents know.
0: Um, I know that um, as a as an educator, um, one of the programs I'm sure you're familiar with is the International Baccalaureate program, um, and it's uh, a really you know forces has forced me um, to go beyond just the content, but really learning how to integrate material. Um, and so the nature of the projects, everything, the inquirers, thinkers, and, you know, all the attributes of an international baccalaureate student um, have really helped me to grow in how I approach my my teaching instruction so I can better integrate things. And so um, I, I can attest to being an international baccalaureate teacher, uh, teaching in international baccalaureate schools um, that Um, Those type of schools, depending upon, you have to still have to ask the questions within those schools as well as to how well they're implementing it. Um, But um, parents may want to consider schools that have an international baccalaureate um, approach to their education. Um, So can can contesting accuracy assess the development of critical thinking skills? Um, That's the first question. And then how can you tell if a student has developed critical thinking skills necessary to succeed in college? So let me ask you, let me ask it one more time. So, can testing accuracy assess the development of critical thinking skills, which I kind of think you've alluded to before? Um, and then, how does that measure out as far as um, college success?
1: Yeah, the, the 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 first question is, well, what kind of skills do we want to to test? And there are, in fact, quite a, a broad range of skills and various categories of skills too. It's not just critical thinking skills. That's a very broad thing, critical thinking. Um, One thing we want to test, I suppose, you know, we use this as a kind of shorthand way of of understanding some core skills of critical thinking. So I could give you four cognitive skills that I think are really critical ones, and they are the ability of students to um, analyse, explain, justify, and evaluate. Now, when you ask that of students, activities that ask students to do those four things, you find that you pull in a whole range of other different skills as well. You know, To do those things, they'll have to organize, synthesize, sequence, interpret, hypothesize, identify. All of these other skills will be pulled in when you focus on those, those big four, the golden tetrad, as I call them, of um, analyze, evaluate, explain, and justify in no particular order. Um, so, is, is is how do you test that on a, on a test? What kind of activity do you do to test your students' justification? Now, if you have multiple choice, it is possible to do some testing of their ability to perhaps justify or explain, you know, in certain ways. You've got to be very careful with the structure of your questions, but you can do those things a little bit. It's very hard to get them to explain in a computer-based, you know, test. Mm-hmm. So... It's very hard to test the quality of their analysis precisely through multiple choice. You can do it. It's very hard. It's actually an enormously skillful thing. And I must say that really well-designed multiple choice or matching or short answer, those kinds of skills, can do some of this job. They can do some of the lifting, but, but not a lot. Ultimately, you need to be able to give students the ability to do those things freeform, their analysis of a situation, their ability to explain their understanding of it, their ability to um, um, select a particular course of action or or problem solving method or technique to justify that, to explain why they justify that, you know, to, to evaluate others attempts at doing it, whatever it might be, if you can get that suite of skills going, then we find that that develops um a, a tremendous range of cognitive abilities in students. And there's some interesting research to show that that those things done in real time can can really have not just not just delivering of, of cognitive gain, but delivery of cognitive gain that sustains over time, over years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because they learn the norms of thinking that way. They learn to to do this sort of stuff collaboratively, something they can then internalize and take with them to new and more difficult situations. But you need to give them that way of understanding how we all work and think collaboratively. And working collaboratively is an extremely precise activity. It's not just getting them all together and you know go for it. Group work and collaboration are two very different things. So we want to, this, this notion of thinking collaboratively is very particularly engineered. Um, <clears throat> so if we can get assessment situations with, which can do that, i think you're well on the way to getting them to think better to learn better and to be managing their work better in more complex environments like college and universities and um uh, that that raises the question then of what kind of assessment we're doing and the assessment for learning is very well suited to that kind of thing rather than assessment of learning so we we have we have the assessment in which we are, we are building these things as we go. We one of the ways to to do this very well is to give students tasks for which they don't quite have the skills yet, <laughs> and they need to build the skills as they need them and require them. And that's a very delicate operation. Now, I'm not talking about not giving them the knowledge they need. I'm talking about giving not, giving not not yet having some of the skills they need mm-hmm. because that's where you build those skills in the in the in the the need for them. And again that's a very precise thing for teachers to do pedagogically so i think the kind of assessment that can be developed over time where we can measure those things as they happen and change and see students um, see student evidence of their explanations and analysis evaluation justification there's some of the best ways to do it Um, that that's one answer to that very long uh, (laughs) very complex question you
0: know as you were talking about this i'm thinking about you know what's important to parents many times is the report card. Okay, hey, what's the grade? You know, A, B, C, um, or whatever. But all A's are not the same. You know, all B's are not the same. And what I'm hearing is depending upon how all these skills are integrated into instruction and into, you know, the assessments, the test, and however they're going to you know, measure what they've learned um, is going to determine whether or not they're really developing these skills. And so, as a parent, what I'm going to encourage you guys to do is to, you know, really, you know, question um, you know, what this is a really mean? What what does it what does it show that they really know? Can they just regurgitate facts back and, you know, get, you know, get you know, those right and wrong or is the, you know, assessments and assignments really moving your child in this direction? And so we can't just necessarily just take, you know, at face value, a report card and say, oh, my child is doing well, um, because I've seen many students that have done really well. Um, they have really high grade point averages. Uh, but then um, when the rigor is introduced in a way they've never seen before, or maybe, you know, SATs or ACTs, it doesn't necessarily correlate over uh, because sometimes they'll, they'll twist that that question and flip it and, you know, bring, in, bring it in a new way. Um, and so I want to encourage all parents to really um, just begin to do a little, do a little more digging and deeping, I mean, digging, digging, di- <laughs> digging more deeply um, into what this is a really represent. Um, and as you're thinking through everything that we're discussing today to really evaluate, you know, what is the worth of that a in college readiness? And how do you do that? I think the best thing to do is, is to ask, ask the teachers. Um, you know, without being indicting, um, but to ask the teachers exactly um, how are their um, children being assessed? Um, I know in the virtual world, sometimes that can be a challenge, uh, but it still needs to be asked. Um, And just so that you are aware of, you know, what type of education my child is getting and what are their teachers expecting of them? And then how are they providing that information back to them and how are they growing and how are they developing these critical thinking skills.
3: And I think also just talking to your your child about what it is that they're learning, oftentimes they're just what you just what you said, regurgitating back the facts that they learned, but they're not able to actually put something together and have a, a thought on their own regarding the information that they've been
0: provided. Right. Yes. And and so, you know, what he's sharing today, parents, is huge. Um, not to be overlooked, um, not to just accept, you know, an A as oh this is an A, but um, yes, it's an A, but what does it really mean? So is it a real A? Yeah. Is it a real, real, (laughs) is it, is, is it a critical A?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Peter, if you could tell us, so there are a lot of things that get in the way of critical thinking or being able to think critically. Um, so particularly cognitive biases and fallacies. So can you tell us what that is, what those are, and then what are some of the common ones that get in the way of, um, people's ability to think critically?
1: Sure. Um, there's the part of part of critical thinking is understanding your own thinking a part of understanding your own thinking is 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 learning from psychology and cognitive science and such i mean interesting thing is that that psychology and cognitive science can tell us a lot about how we think but they can't tell us how we ought to think and that's that's a different project um um, it's more of a philosophical project about what makes for a good reason and what constitutes you know justifiable inference and that kind of thing but in, in in the pathway to understanding how we ought to think, and I don't mean to say what opinions we ought to have, but what processes we think are good solid inquiry, um, we have to be familiar with the with the terrain of our of our thinking. So cognitive science and psychology are very useful there. Um and and the notion of cognitive biases is important here too, because what, what's critical about them is they are tendencies for us to think in certain ways. They're you know a bit a bit like a, a a car that always pulls to the left you know if you don't if you're not constantly aware of it it's going to pull you off course and then we have biases that do that for us all the time um and it's 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 almost impossible to list the, the, the you know the cognitive biases that operate because they 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 there's scores and scores of them perhaps hundreds of them mm-hmm. that, um, that operate but very common ones include things like the confirmation bias of course where where you you have a particular belief, and so you're, you you selectively give your attention to those circumstances in which that belief is confirmed, and you selectively uh, you know do not uh, give attention to those situations in which it's not confirmed, uh, and so that leads us to sort of in a loop of confirmation that doesn't really exist, um, because you know if you think people who wear hats are bad drivers. For example, and you go past an accident with someone wearing a hat, you go, aha, I knew that was the case. <laughs> but if they're going past and they're not wearing a hat, you don't register that mm-hmm. to that bias. You know, so it's it's confirmation bias is a very common one. Also, one of our strongest biases, and this is a this is a really critical one, is that we we tend to we tend to we always seek coherence and we accept things that cohere with our existing point of view um, more easily than things that don't. And sometimes we look for reasons to reject things that don't cohere to our worldview, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's a, that's a, that's a bias. Now uh, biases are sometimes quite useful. Um, I don't mean to suggest that it's all it's all ind- indication of, of broken cognition, but we have to be very careful about about these tendencies that we have. Um, they range from the the cognitive to how they're manifest in social conditions. For example, if you are if you are particularly well off materially in the world, you tend to think the world is people tend to think the world is more just than hmm. people who are not well off materially. You know, there's there's it's called the just world fallacy. Um, uh, so there's all these kind of ways in which we interact in, in, with the world, and and there is no view from nowhere. Nobody is free of them, but none of these biases manifest themselves as they. As they as they occur we don't to our consciousness you know we don't we're not aware of them to us it seems like we are we are thinking clearly and lucidly uh, and if only everyone else could see things <laughs> as clearly as we do then there'd be no problems but we're all thinking that and we're all thinking different things so that's the, the, the scary thing about the biases is that, that even awareness sometimes brings no defense It's just how we we operate and you combine that with um, some some errors in reasoning, so that's what separates the cognitive biases from the fallacies of reasoning. Cognitive biases just these tendencies to to drift in certain ways, make certain kinds of decisions under certain circumstances. But the fallacies are just mistakes in reasoning, where we will we will um, you know not properly see through a course of reasoning and and end up somewhere we ought probably not to, um, as a matter of bad reasoning. Um, you know things like the black and white fallacy. So rather than seeing Shades of gray We'll just say somebody says we see this in politics all the time, of course. Especially somebody here in America. Says, yeah, yeah. Well, some <laughs> someone says you know, wouldn't it wouldn't it be nice if we just had I don't know, maybe a bit of healthcare? And then someone says, right, so you want to live in a complete communist society? And you think, well, no, I, I didn't say that. But the, <laughs> the, the, the polarization, you know, the black and white fallacy is 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 is, is a common one. Um, all there's this tremendous number of fallacies. Again, it's too hard to go through all of them, but, but errors in reasoning and cognitive biases together can, can um, really derail us. So it's important to have some knowledge of them, uh, even though that's not always enough, because we need to know then, well, if that's the case, what ought we to do? You know, How are they going wrong? And that's, that's where the philosophical analysis of what good reasoning is comes into play and gives us the direction beyond them.
0: So this really, I'm so fascinated by this, um, we as parents all have our own biases that we all, because our children are a reflection of us, you know, physically, uh, but they can be also a reflection of these biases. Um, what would you say to parents to encourage them to examine or re-examine or challenge the their own biases that they may inadvertently be transferring to their children, um, which may hinder their ability to develop the critical thinking skills that we're discussing today.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a weighty question, that one. Um, because the ways in which students, or students, well, I was gonna say students pick it up from their teachers, but also you know, children pick it up from their parents is, 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 uh, is subtle and, and mm. not always hard to control. But I, I tend to think that these biases, or at least these modes of reasoning, or at least this ways of inquiring into the world that we can teach students in different way. It's often, I mean, when I was a teacher, you know, uh, I contrast it with my, my wife. Uh, uh, we both taught philosophy and we might teach a, a section, you know, on some topic of free will, religion, or whatever it might be. And students would ask you, what do you think on the subject? And my wife was always excellent at, at never telling what she thought. She would always say, "Well, what do you think?" and "Why do you think that's the case?" and blah blah blah. Um, I had a different view, and it's quite it's quite controversial. I don't pretend to say it's the right one, not by a long shot. But I'll say it as a model of what you could <laughs> perhaps not do, if you, were, <laughs> or you could do. But I always feel like it was worthwhile me explaining to my children and to my students, "What do you think about this?" And I would say, "Well, here is my position, but let me tell you." The cost of me telling you my position is me explaining to you my reasoning. And I want to include in my explaining to you my reasoning, what I think all the limitations of that reasoning are, mm. what I don't know, and what I should need to know. And so, you know, I think that this is the case. And the reason I think that is because here's my reasoning here. It comes through. But I'm not sure about this. And I don't really know enough about that. But I might hear something else later that changes my position. So I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that, given my situation and my reading and understanding, this is where I'm sitting at the moment. But there's good reason to think it might move. and so- But if you go through that, you're actually modelling to your students and your, your your children how reasoning works. And I think it's a useful thing to do. But you're also modelling that you are you, you consider yourself fallible, mm-hmm. and that that. Just because you think this doesn't mean to say it's the case, but but you're explaining why. But I want my students, and I want all students to see their teachers, not as the the keepers of fixed knowledge, yes. but as model inquirers. And And I say to my students, you could change your mind on something every single day and still be entirely consistent, because what you're consistent about is the process of inquiry. You, are, you have integrity and rigour in your process of inquiry. If you get more information, if you hear better arguments, it's good to change your mind because that is, in fact, consistent with inquiry. What's not consistent is keeping the fixed view as all the information leading to that around it changes. That's not consistent. That's just being pig-headed. Um, so um, I actually think that there's, there's value in talking to students and our children about how we think. And, and, and also acknowledging the limitations of that thinking.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: in doing so, you can say to them, you know, but but do you think that's a good inference? Do you think, you know, I, do you think that's enough for me to make that decision? Or do you think that I've, I've you know, gone too far with it or other works? And I, I love having those conversations with students and teachers. So whether or not that's the right thing to do, I don't know. But I do value the way in which it can allow them to, allow me to model inquiry, to model fallibility, to model changing my mind. Um, and, and to always, therefore, be on the knee, on the lookout for more information, because if you have a dogmatic view on something, your need to further inquire is, is non-existent. You shut down inquiry with dogmatism um, because there's no need to inquire anymore. We have the truth. This is it. Inquiry is no longer necessary. And I think that is where all critical thinking skills crash and, and fall. So we always need to be able to question in those ways.
3: What do you think is the barrier that we I guess as humans, I'm thinking as parents um, are trying to um, overcome as to why we are holding so tightly to our um, our views, our opinions our, our values, whatever those are, and unwilling to let other things in?
1: Well, I think there are two key reasons for that one one is is when we mistakenly fuse or say mistakenly, but I think you know, unfortunately, fuse our identity and our opinion mm. into one. And you say, I, oh, you know, this is this is my brand now. This is my badge. You know, when when your opinions become nothing more than gang colours, just identifying wow. as this group or that group. Yeah. That's that's when I think things ossify and when it's which it just it's just a terrible, terrible situation to be in. Um, but but two, you you um, you have a worldview developed in which all these things sit and make sense together, okay? Um, and and I, I and 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 people with these with worldviews that just don't gel together will reject each other's positions. I remember, I remember seeing. I think it was I was on a Fox News show, and I think they had exposed AOC's radical. Socialist agenda, which was like healthcare and gun control, and you know, and 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 I remember her saying, "Yeah, yeah, that's basically it," you know. And a lot of people in Australia were going at like that going, "Yeah, that's basically," it, that's <laughs> right. and but other people are going, "Oh, it's just insane. This is just crazy. Could you think of anything more crazy?" You know, this is just this this same information is being interpreted through two different worldviews that are just mutually exclusive. Um, and so, if you're in that view, in any of those views. You, you, you know, you, you, it, it, to, to incorporate this bit of information may require the, the destructuring of mm-hmm. your entire worldview system, which is painful oh and gosh. difficult and, and too hard to do. So there's all these reasons why people just, you know, don't um, change their mind. Uh, and they're very powerful reasons. And only, the only way through that is dialogue. You can't, you can't pummel them with information
0: that's so good you know when i was um to your point you know when i was working on my in my my master's program um you know i uh, have a master's in theology so um the the arguments for different you know passages um what our professors would do a lot is you know they would say okay um, here is the passage or here is the argument um and here is here are four different theologians who have very different views on the same passage. And what we were forced to do was we had to look at all the arguments. We couldn't just, you know, they didn't just say this is what it is and here's how it is, but they were really good at making us examine them all and then processing all the arguments. And then based upon what you see and what you understand and what you have you know, examined. Uh, from a grammatical, historical, theological, exegetical, all the process that we had to do, is now I want you to come up with your own stance based upon that. Um and so to that point, oh and I want to ask you is what do you believe is the importance of going across the aisle to someone's viewpoint that is different from from your own? Um, you know, we all like to your point, we all have our own biases, but um, how can seeing someone else's worldview and coming into their world and into their experiences help to develop better critical thinking skills?
1: Well, there's a principle in in philosophy called the principle of honesty and charity. Um, And and what it says is that if you want to um, propagate a particular position or justify a standpoint, what you have to do is engage with alternative views and show why you find them not convincing. But the principle of honesty and charity means if the charity part is if you're not quite sure of the interpretation of them, you err on the side of charity and be more positive than otherwise. And honesty is to represent them as honestly as you possibly can. And the philosopher, this is a very old principle in philosophy, but but the philosopher Dan Dennis recently um, of last few years has has admirably uh, revamped it. And um, you'd say it like this. You'd say, so here's somebody who has this particular point of view. And you'd say, well, let me see if I can first understand your point of view. And you want to say it in such a way that they say, yes, that's exactly what I
2: mean.
1: Hmm. Okay, So you, you're giving them the best possible light, uh, which is the opposite of debating or politics. You know, the last thing we need, in fact, is more public debate. What we need is more public argumentation, you know, because you, you've, you've helped them to articulate their position. And you can perhaps help point out why you think their position is flawed or or not. And they may come up with a counter argument that says, you know, I hear what you're saying and you've pointed out some errors in my argument, but here's why I think that doesn't work. And you go, oh, I hadn't thought of that. And so, you know, it's that kind of dialogue that is so important um, to to help change each other's minds. Mm
3: -hmm. Proximity is key for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um. We talked about this a little bit when we initially spoke um about how ha- helping kids ask the right questions what are some of the things that you teach your instructors um to help foster good question asking
1: sure um well there's, there's a number of ways to answer that we could talk about you know question types and when you ask different kinds of questions and questions are actually very poorly theorized you know sometimes you have people say you know of, Closed questions are bad and open questions are good, but it's not, it's not always like that, it's quite different. The critical thing is to, is to question um, and to encourage students to, to question. Um, and sometimes the most effective kinds of questions are those questions which we might call epistemological questions and epistemology being that branch of philosophy concerned with the nature of knowledge, how do we know? What do we mean by knowledge? What do we mean by know? Um, and so the questions of of how could we know that are so interesting. I remember I remember being being sitting in a in a um, a classroom I was teaching with um, about 13 or 13-year-olds, 13 and we were lining up to go in, and we'd just heard some of the information come through about the the most accurate representations of the age of the universe that we had, which was which at the time was about thirteen point six billion years old or something. So I said to, I said to my students, I said, do you know that the universe we found out the universe is thirteen point six billion years old? And one student said, what today? And <laughs> as if it was a it was happy happy birthday to the universe today. <laughs> But that showed what they were thinking. You know, I thought, oh, that tells me so much about how you see what the whole concept of old means, you know. But what also the other thing that I didn't do as a young teacher, I should have said, how do you think we could possibly know that? Right. Because the questions of how do we know are such so interesting questions, such interesting questions. So we we want to have a lot of, a lot of time in the classroom for how we would know. But not only that, go back to those four skills I said before of, of analyze, explain, evaluate, and justify. You know, w- one of the ways that we we work with classes this lots of ways we do this, but one nice little trick is to or tip, not a trick, is when whenever we ask the students to say, um, okay, what should we do now, or what do you think the best course of action is, or how might we best consider this? You know, um, is to follow up with the words and what's your argument. Now, what that does is immediately shift the job of the of the students to sort of expedition or fishing or just you know throwing out guesswork to a cognitive act which involves justification and evaluation. So we say, okay? I think we should do this, and here's my reasons. And we know that when we give our reasons, they're gonna be analyzed by everybody else and other people might come in and say, look, I think that's a good reason, but what about this is a reason? And it would, there, would there be a problem with this? And it's that kind of collaborative atmosphere that works really well. So those questions in which we're asking students to justify, to evaluate, um, to explain, to to, to analyze, um, and to, to construct arguments, um, to defend a position. And again, it comes back to a classroom culture in which if we then, critique those arguments we're not critiquing the person Mm. we're we're valuing the fact that they could offer something for us to work with and even if we don't end up going that way we now know we can't go that way so thanks to you for giving us that information and you know there's a lot of cultural work to be done in the classroom to make sure that we can have that environment in which we value individuals and we decouple we allow them to decouple themselves from their arguments and ideas because they're just testing and playing um, and they want to you know, contribute that to the group because we are co-inquirers and that means that we are all putting forth ideas and and building on each other and sometimes we make mistakes or we're wrong or we don't follow down that road and that's great because that's how we knew if we you didn't do that we wouldn't know that that's not the right way right to go so that's very useful
3: it sounds like being a critical thinker it takes a great deal of humility
1: of humility um, I think it. I think it does, in the sense of being of recognizing your, your fallibility, your your intellectual humility, um, but it, it doesn't mean to say you're not rigorous or that you don't have high standards of what you want to see in in, in, in thinking and inquiry. It doesn't mean that, um, but it just means to say that you can't be seen as the keeper of all wisdom mm-hmm. because you know you, you could be wrong, um, but you want to be seen as a model inquirer, someone who 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 is very good at in inquiry. And therefore, more reliably arriving at well-justified positions. This oh, is so fascinating.
0: No, I'm just, I'm just so fascinated by <laughs> everything that you're saying, and, and just how critical this is—not just for students, but just for all of us—and mm-hmm. um, just how we approach life and not be so closed-fisted in our views, and to open ourselves up and to engage um with different um you know viewpoints and to not just believe it because somebody says it but why do we believe what we believe in and um are we open to you know in light of new information and knowledge uh are we able to be more flexible um and this and if if we can model that as parents i think it'll go a long way in developing that skill in our children
3: yeah Peter, I'd love to know. Um, I we have one child that has autism, and we have another one that has ADHD. Um, what are the challenges of teaching critical thinking to kids that are um, neurodiverse?
1: Um, there's a very strong part of me which wants to say there aren't any. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would be glib, and it's not my area of expertise, so I'm not going to say that. But I will say that I have colleagues who work um, in in various areas of education in which these concerns matter. Um, and I can tell you, I'll tell you a story about, about one of them. Um, there is a, a, in fact, we got this story independently three times. There's a, a questioning device that we use in our classrooms, and it it um, it's a very old device. It's been around for a long time, called the Q matrix, and it it it's a matrix where you have questions like um, who, what, when, where, why, you know, along the top, and down the side, you have um, is, did, could, would, should, might, that kind of thing. So what you can do is you can match in that in that grid you know, who might with why should and how can and all that kind of thing. You can just generate all sorts of interesting questions. And there's a lot of, you know, basic questions like what is, when did, which are factual questions that you can ask of a situation, of any situation at all. So if you have a topic that you're discussing with the class, um, you can use that kind of matrix to generate questions about the topic. Before we even introduce it, you know, before we even know anything about it, we could just we could just say these things. You know, I've, I've used it for year four students um, in fairy tales like Little Red Riding Hood, um, I've used it with year 12 physics students in nuclear weapons, you know. You can think immediately of of really interesting questions about when did, why could, when should, how would type questions about nuclear weapons, you could generate questions. Um, So there's very sort of basic factual questions but there's also very speculative how might, when could, why should kind of questions and I'll just take the example of one teacher working in a school in Brisbane here, who gave it to a boy who was um, an autism spectrum and who, who was who was being who was just not engaging at all with classwork, and what the teachers were doing were minimising the the demands of that student in mm-hmm. the hope, logically I suppose in some ways of engaging them, giving them some success so they could build it back up again, but student wasn't interested. So the teacher gave the student this Q matrix, and I forget what the topic was, but was some topic they were looking at. That student was not interested in the when, did, why, you know, what is questions. They went straight to generate all the why, might, how could, when should speculative, modal hypothesizing questions and filled up the questions like that, which was the exact opposite of what the teachers were trying to do. Reduce it to more content, very basic Uninteresting questions. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, the student developed those questions themselves and then set about doing a project to answer those questions. That project was displo- displayed in the foyer of the school, and neither the teachers, uh, the teachers, did not believe that it was that student that did that work because it wow. was so interesting. Um, and the parents were they they knew their student, you know, their child, of course, but but they were still very very impressed that that came out of their their child. So this this was able to unlock something in Mm. that student. And we heard this independently several times um, using this device, something that that showed that the normal approach in the classroom was wrong, that 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 was not what their teachers ought to have been doing to to engage that student. Now, that's just a story. I'm not an expert in this area, so I can't pretend to say what that means and what the inferences are, but I can tell you that that's what happened. Um, and I can tell you that that we've got a partnership now with Autism Queensland, based on the work we've seen with our teachers to explore this more more fully. Um, but we have found students who 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 disengage in classes will come to school for particular classes with a particular teacher who's going through our in our mm. network, or in a in a in a critical thinking or philosophy club that they put on you know after school. They will come on those days. And those students who'd otherwise disengage from school will arrive on those days because in those classrooms, their voice is heard. We know that their thinking matters. Mm. Uh, they know that as well. Um, and we also have this in a very strong Indigenous context, um, where our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students here in Australia, uh, we have a we have a program in Queensland called the Solid Pathways Program, which caters for high-performing Indigenous students before they disappear from the standardized testing results they do extremely well in the years three five seven but after that they just fall off a cliff well they did they disappeared so we tried to engage them and keep them through with critical thinking or thinking classes in which their view mattered and we you know we can say that that gap is closed in queensland and and doesn't exist anymore um and in queensland parliament at least they said one of the reasons for that was our was our program Hmm. um so um you know this idea of of having agency and your voice mattering in class, um, of your thinking being important. I don't see how that relates to autism or, or ADHD um, necessarily. Necessarily, you know, you can say that these things matter to to everybody, and that's a, that's a way a way of engaging people, um, regardless of of where they come from. Mm. So that's that's part of my answer to that. That's good.
3: Peter, what are some resources that you can recommend to parents to help their kids um, grow with these critical thinking skills?
1: Well, one way you can um, learn a bit more about the nature of critical thinking and particularly the skills of argumentation and justifying and evaluating is uh, to have a look at uh, a MOOC that we have created at the University of Queensland, which is a massive open online course. They, they are free. They're on the edX platform of, of Harvard and MIT Use um and it's called uh meta 101x philosophy and critical thinking so meta 101x philosophy and critical thinking and it it gives you a way of 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 getting into some of the key questions of philosophy if you're interested but but also the the techniques of philosophy which is argumentation the methodology um so learning how to justify to build um, good arguments that justify um positions and how to evaluate and construct and analyze arguments it's a very very important idea but that's that's one thing um, to look at um there's a there's there's a lovely website called kialo.com um which is not something that i've been involved with but i know the person who, who developed it um k-i-a-l-o.com apparently it means reason in esperanto um, and it's a it's a way of of developing or or developing your students the first steps towards reason giving and reason taking that are at the core of good critical thinking before we get to full-blown argumentation skills Um, there's also um, for educators there's a website called um, reasons.io which is an argument mapping software um, that we have developed to help to help educators who who are fluent in argumentation to help them to develop those skills in in students as well um so there's a number of things to to, to play with that, that that could help um as well as a whole range of of course books on critical thinking which um which are not hard to find um popularly
3: all right well we have definitely gone over time and uh, david and i are geeking out about this topic and we're so thankful that you got up early it's what time is it now there in the morning
1: It's nine
3: forty. Okay, Okay. well, we've we you've been with us for a couple hours, so we thank you for getting up early and um, investing in our uh, our um, audience. So uh, we appreciate your time.
1: You're very welcome. Great to be here. Good to meet you
0: all. Too. Thank you.
3: So, uh, Noggin Educational Foundation is the premier sponsor of School Days, so we always want to let you know what's happening with Noggin. We're currently taking applications for two of our programs. Noggin offers 12 hours of free private tutoring to students through our educational coaching program. Also, through our ARD advocacy program, parents receive support in securing services and accommodations their kids need at school for learning disabilities or special needs. With the closure of schools and distance learning, the education gap for low-income students has widened, and the one-on-one intervention we provide is vital. So see our website, NogginFoundation.org, or email me at Donita, D-O-N-E-D-A, at NogginFoundation.org for more details. And as always, you can head to our website com for more information about all that we're doing and the resources mentioned here on School Days. And remember, you don't ever have to miss a show. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Audible, and pretty much anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Noggin Foundation. That's N-O-G-G-I-N. And last but not least, David and I always want to end the shows by saying that we are parenting by grace. We depend on God to give us the wisdom and strength we need to raise our kids into flourishing adults. And if you would like to know more about that, please email us at info at Have a great week and stay safe. School Days is sponsored by Noggin Educational Foundation. At Noggin, we provide free educational resources to students from low-income families and support to their parents like the preceding broadcast. School Days is made possible by the generosity of listeners just like you. Please consider donating to Noggin at Noggin, N-O-G-G-I-N, foundation.org.